2013 and there is a wedding in Kalispell, Montana. Eight days later, the groom would go missing and the bride is acting suspicious. Less than two weeks later, the groom would be found dead at the bottom of a cliff. This is the case of Jordan Lynn Graham, Killer Bride. I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. as well tonight is a truly crazy case i was watching true crime weekly on youtube the other night and i thought i had to bring this to you for sure now this is another one of those senseless killings that will leave you with a what the fuck was she thinking so let's get stuck into it the location is kalispell montana which is right up in the northwest of the U.S. mainland towards the Canadian border. And I've already mentioned the killer bride's name, but first up we need to talk about the groom, Cody Johnson. Cody was born on April the 8th, 1988 in San Jose, California to single mum Sherry. In 2002, they moved to Kalispell. Now that is the city in northwest Montana. He loved the outdoor life in Kalispell, hiking, fishing, and when older, he loved to go four-wheel driving and shooting. He loved working on cars, modding them to go faster, and adding bling to make them look better. His family and friends said that he had a heart of gold and would do anything for anyone. He had a charismatic personality, over-the-top funny, and everyone loved it when he was around. When he left school, he got a job modifying commercial vehicles. He had plans to stay in Kalispell, get married and raise a family. So then on October the 30th, 2011, he met Jordan Lynn Graham. She was born August 1991 in Montana. She was active in church, loved the outdoors, and while shy, she was able to have fun and was fun to be around. With a strict Christian upbringing her whole life, she genuinely believed in the church and worshipped at the Faith Baptist Church on Reserve Drive. Before she left school, she would make pocket money taking care of parishioners' kids, a job she would do full-time once she graduated. She loved the kids, and they loved her. So, as I said in October 2011, she met Cody, and he fell in love almost straight away. By November, they were starting to date, and Cody, by this time, he was going to church with Jordan, and pretty much going full-on Jesus-worshipping. Now, Cody was infatuated with Jordan, but she didn't seem to have the same feelings. Rather, she was somewhat aloof and a little bit distant. A year later, in December 2012, they decided to get married. Now, Jordan was so full-on about her faith that she told Cody that he had to wait until they got married before they had sex. Now... (laughs) 
Whether or not Cody was happy with that or not, he was so in love with Jordan and the Lord Jesus that he went along with it. So with an upcoming wedding, you need to plan well in advance. That can be stressful, exciting, and most can't wait until the big day. So after being engaged for 19 months, the pair got married on the 29th of June 2013 at Kalispell. Video of the wedding shows that Jordan at times looked happy, but quite distracted during the ceremony, not even looking at Cody during the wedding vows. Later, during the reception, video shows them awkwardly dancing together, with Jordan looking like she was dancing with the creepy crazy uncle rather than her groom, if you know what I mean. She did not look comfortable at all. So, of course, you'll have to try and find these videos to see what I mean. You can search on YouTube. Now, quite a bit of the following will be directly from court records. In the days immediately following her marriage to Cody, Jordan texted Kimberly Martinez. Now, she was her best friend and matron of honour at a wedding. The text described her unhappiness in the marriage and on June 30, the day after her wedding, Jordan wrote to Martinez. She says, Totally just had a meltdown. I'm completely second-guessing everything right now. I don't know if all this was the right thing to do. So much happened last night, I just don't know. The next day, July 1st, Jordan texted to Martinez, I cannot freaking pull myself together. I haven't stopped crying since I was there. I wish someone would have just straight up asked me if this is what I wanted. I can't go back and change anything. I should be happy and I'm just not. I don't feel like myself. All I want is to be me again. To be happy and not feel like a bad person. Because all the time, all I feel like doing is crying and I hate it. But I just can't keep it in. I'll see how tonight goes. I actually decided to come come to the softball game. Still not sure about going home after. I just know he's going to want to do stuff and I'm not really, I'm not, I'm really not wanting to. Guess I'll see later on how the rest of the evening goes. Now, Martinez understood Jordan's reference to stuff as (laughs) meaning having sex. As Martinez chatted with Jordan on how to handle the situation, Jordan texted, I'm afraid of what could happen to me because I'm almost to the point, almost not even wanting to live. On July 5th, in more text exchanges with Martinez, Jordan foreshadowed her plan for dealing with her husband's requests for sex. She says, I think I'm going to talk to him on Sunday night if this weekend doesn't go good. He gets a temper, so he gets a temper fast, so I'll be freaking out. Well, if you don't hear from me after Sunday night, be worried. Now, Martinez next saw Jordan and Cody at church services Sunday evening, July 7. Cody and Jordan ate with friends at the local Dairy Queen and they left around 8 to 8.30pm. After church services, Jordan texted Martinez. She says, he's in a bad mood. I'm afraid he'll do something, then take off. I'll be calling you, but dead serious. If you don't hear from me at all again tonight, something happened. When Cody 
failed to show up for work the next day. His close friend and boss, Cameron Fredrickson, he became very concerned when he could not reach Cody via cell phone. Jordan texted him asking, did Cody show up to work today? Then she added, yesterday, some out-of-town car friends came and picked him up. I was not there, but the last thing I heard, he was going to go for a ride with his buddies from out of town. She then texted Cody's mum, Sherry Johnson, and she says, have you heard from Cody today? Now, later in the day, on July 8th, this is the Monday, Cody's mother, Cody's friend, Cecilia Llewellyn, Cody's brother, and Cody's friend, Jacob Bell, they all gathered at Cody's home in an effort to determine what had happened to him. Now, Jordan explained to Bell and Llewellyn that Cody had left his phone and his car keys in their garage and left in a dark car with some friends from Washington. Now, this raised a few suspicions as Cody never went anywhere without his keys or phone. Now, I can understand that. <laughs> I Even when I go out, if I'm not taking the car, uh, not the car keys, but the bike keys or whatever, I tend to put, keep them with me anyway. Uh, the same with my phone. I, I just make sure I've got keys and phone before I walk out the door. Now, Jordan privately confided in Llewellyn that Cody had wanted to have sex the entire week that they were married, and she just wasn't happy. I mean, what what the actual fuck? Did she also say that she hadn't had sex with him at all, or just he's trying to have it non-stop the entire week and she's not happy? Anyway, let's keep going. Jordan never reported Cody missing to law enforcement. Now, rather, Cody's uncle and friends, they notified authorities that Cody was missing. So, mm, as part of the missing persons investigation, Kalispell police officer Chad Zimmerman, what a name, Chad, hey, hey, I'm Chad. Chad Zimmerman interviewed Jordan on July 9th at the Kalispell police station, as they do. They will always go to the person closest. Jordan told Officer Zimmerman that Cody had sent her a text message saying he was going for a joyride with friends from Washington. Also, she does say that they always delete their text messages after they send them. Mm, Yeah. Since they were in their home together at the time, she looked out and saw a car leaving from the front of the house. She described it was a dark car, but asserted she could not remember seeing a license plate. Jordan then offered police a suspect, stating that on the evening of July 7, Cody had received a call and that had put him in a bad mood, but he he would not tell her who had called. Jordan told police she guessed it was a guy called Jose, a kid who owed Cody quite a bit of money. Now, they would end up finding that Cody did have a call, but uh, the person was totally cleared. The next day, July 10, Jordan was visiting with her friend Marie Benson about Cody's disappearance and told Benson about an email she'd received the night before from a CarmenTony607 at gmail.com. Jordan described this email as stating generally that if the authorities were no longer involved, Cody would come home. Hmm. 
The same day, Jordan described a, described a similar email to her friend, Amy Hess, except in this email, Jordan described the statement that Cody had died. In describing this email to Hess, Jordan added that she was worried Cody's good friend Cameron Fredrickson may have taken steps to make it appear Jordan had sent this email to herself. Hmm, this is, I'm going to say, mm, so much tonight. Jordan brought a copy of the email on her cell phone to the Kalispell Police Department on July 10. Detective Corey Clark obtained the assistance of female detective Melissa Smith and the two conducted a videotaped interview of Jordan concerning the email. The email Jordan showed the officers on her phones <laughs> went like this. Hello, Jordan. My name is Tony. There's no bother in looking for Cody anymore. He's gone. I saw your post on Twitter and thought I would email you. He had come with some buddies and met up with me on Sunday night in Columbia Falls. He was saying he needed to be with buddies for a bit and take them for a joyride before they had to go. So he said bye to me and they took off in a black car for a ride. Three of the other guys came back saying they'd gone for a ride in the woods somewhere and Cody got out of the car and went for a little hike and they're positive he fell and he's dead. Jordan, I don't know who the guys were, but they took off. So call off the missing persons report. Cody is gone for sure. Tony. <laughs> what the fuck? After, oh, okay, no problem. Nothing to see here. After presenting the Tony email to police, Jordan identified a person named Tony Stolkup as a buddy of Cody's. Now, can I just say something here? Please let me say this. Jordan's story is now becoming a bit fantastic. I'm sure you're all thinking the same as me. Just shut the fuck up and don't try and create some sort of story. Just shut up, Jordan. Ah. Jordan then described the events of July 7 to Detective Clark and Detective Smith. In this version, she again described Cody receiving a telephone call, which changed his mood. The mood change resulted in an argument at their home. They separated in the house for some time until Jordan received her last text from Cody stating he was going for a joyride with his buddies. Upon receiving this text, Jordan described going out into the garage and seeing a car pulling away. Jordan described finding Cody's cell phone in the garage. She further embellished her story by saying she was worried because Cody had previously wrecked a car in the Glacier National Park by going off a cliff. She indicated that Cody liked to go on hikes in the park off trail in places where if you fall, you're not going to make that fall. She described Cody's clothing when she last saw him and added that he was wearing his wedding rim, wedding rim, Wedding ring made of tungsten. There you go. So, honestly, shut up, Jordan. If I was the cop interviewing you, I would be starting to think not only were you responsible for Cody's disappearance, but somehow he's going to be found at the bottom of a cliff in Glacier National Park. Anyway, after making this statement to police, Jordan gathered some friends, her brother and her mother for a trip to the Loop in Glacier National Park. As they drove into the park, 
Jordan told her friend Hannah Cheryl she just had a feeling this is the place he liked to go. When the search party arrived at the loop, Jordan told Cheryl, I have a feeling he's down there. Jordan and her brother hiked in the area for a short period of time, but darkness ended their search. Okay, now before I go on, I do know Cody's friends at this stage were looking for him everywhere, doing the flyer thing and all that. Now, Jordan didn't seem to be the distraught newlywed bride that you would think she would be. In fact, she seemed quite happy, happier now than she had been for a long time, especially since she was married. So Jordan mounted another search, and and I'm doing that with air quotes, which you obviously can't see, but they mounted another search to find Cody in Glacier Park on July 11. The same group, with the addition of Cecilia Llewellyn, distributed some missing persons flyers near the park entrance and then again drove to the loop, where Jordan embarked on her search. Cheryl and Llewellyn found the search area too dangerous, so only Jordan made the initial search at the loop. Jordan climbed down the steep rocky slope from the road until she reached a spot and shouted, It's him! Jordan's brother joined her at the location and confirmed seeing Cody far below the cliff, face down in a stream. Llewellyn drove Jordan through the park to find authorities. Now on this trip, Jordan explained to her he slipped and fell and stated, now detectives will get out of my business. Hmm. Llewellyn and Jordan met park ranger Steve Powers at the Lake McDonald Lodge in Glacier National Park. Jordan told Ranger Powers she'd found the body of Cody Johnson. Both Llewellyn and Ranger Powers noted Johnson exhibited no emotion, despite having just found her dead husband. When Ranger Powers asked Jordan how she knew to look for Cody in such a specific area, Jordan replied that this was a place Cody wanted to see before he died. Jordan added that Cody's out-of-state buddies came and picked him up. After receiving this report from Jordan, Ranger Powers asked Jordan to make a written statement and Jordan complied, writing, Left Sunday night with buddies to go for a joyride. Always said he liked to go off trails and wanted to make his own off the beaten path. When someone visited, he would want to take them on crazy roads or crazy hikes. Would often try to find trails on his own, be it in an off-road car or on foot. I saw what looked like a black jacket rolled up, some back skin and darker greenish shorts. Now, get this for a rookie mistake. While Jordan was in Glacier National Park searching for a dead husband, Detective Corey Clark was doing a trash pull on a garbage can. In the garbage can at Jordan's residence, Detective Clark found the wedding shawl Jordan had worn the day she married Cody. What the fuck? On July 12th, park rangers and FBI agents and other law enforcement officers made the harrowing trek from the Loop parking lot down the mountain to Cody's body with the assistance of climbing ropes and gear. Detective Clark described the location of Cody's body in such an extremely remote spot that the last people there before were probably dinosaurs. Along the way, officers collected items of evidence, including a shoe and a black cloth. 
One of the shoes was found approximately 100 or 150 yards downstream from Cody's body. The black cloth was found upstream with human hair embedded in it, closer to Cody's body. Now, this black cloth seemed to be a blindfold. Now, Flathead County Sheriff's Office Deputy Coroner Richard Sign was tasked with making the initial examination of Cody's body, identifying him through the driver's license in Cody's wallet and pronouncing him dead. In doing his field examination of Cody's body, Deputy Sign examined and photographed Cody's left hand, which bore no wedding ring. So unless it was a bit loose and fell off, he wasn't wearing it. So mm, that's a little bit strange. The next day, Deputy Sign drove Cody's body to the Montana State Crime Lab at Missoula, Montana, where Montana State Medical Examiner Dr. Gary Dale performed the autopsy. Upon conducting the autopsy, Dr. Dale determined that Cody Johnson died from many blunt force injuries, including an open skull fracture and brain damage. Four days after recovering Cody's body, law enforcement arranged for FBI agent and polygraph examiner Stacy Smidala, I hope I've got a name right, I think that's what it is, to interview Jordan at the Kalispell Police Station. Initially, Jordan stuck with her story about Cody leaving with some out-of-state buddies in a dark car with Washington plates. When Smidala confronted Jordan and showed her the Glacier National Park surveillance photograph of her and Cody driving into the park on July 7, she broke down and admitted pushing Cody off the cliff. You see, not only will your mobile phone track you, but there's plenty good chance you're going to get photographed by one of the thousands of cameras in ATMs, intersections, parking lots, whatever. There's there's security cameras all over the place nowadays, and there was one on the entry to Glacier National Park. Now, investigators were able to track the origins of the emails sent to Jordan and found that they came from a house of Jordan's stepfather, where her mum and brother lived. The email was sent, sent moments after the account was set up, Another rookie mistake. Now, what made Cody and Jordan go up to the loop at Glacier National Park? Well, a friend of Cody's, Eddie Colon, what an unfortunate name, said he saw Cody on the day he went missing and that he'd asked him if he wanted to go and play some golf. He said he couldn't because Jordan had a surprise for him. Jordan's stepfather, Stephen Rutledge, also told investigators the exact same thing that Cody mentioned to him on the day he went missing that Jordan had a surprise for him. So if Jordan's own family testified that Jordan had a surprise for Cody, then you can pretty much be sure it was true. And this shows possible premeditation. Eddie and Stephen were not the only ones to tell investigators about the surprise Jordan had for Cody. So he was probably pretty bloody excited. And you can imagine what that surprise was or what he thought it was. Anyway, at Cody's funeral, Sherry Johnson, his mum, when trying to hug and console Jordan during a prayer, well, she said to her, everything will be okay. Cody's with Jesus now. Now, Jordan didn't respond at all. In fact, at the funeral, she seemed disinterested and was more interested in playing with her phone the whole time. She seemed to just want to get it over and done with so she could get on with her life. So Jordan, 
she'd be eventually charged with first-degree murder and also charged with lying to investigators. Now, prosecutors also found evidence that Jordan had talked about killing her mother and stepfather five weeks before the wedding. So this would put a lot more weight to the allegations that she planned to push Cody over the cliff and it wasn't just an accident. Well, four days into the trial, of which Jordan pled not guilty, she did a deal to plead guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder as long as the first-degree murder charge was dropped, along with lying to investigators that those charges were dropped as well. Now, this was accepted, and although she tried to back out of the deal later, she ended up getting 30 years with a further five on top of that where she would be supervised. So, Islanders, another one of those cases that was totally senseless and the perpetrator made so many mistakes that there was no way they were going to get away with it. Again, a bit of a Jody Arias thing. First up, from what it looks like, Jordan was okay with the wedding bit, the planning and all that side of it. But the bit after the wedding, like having sex with your spouse, sleeping with them and all that, she wasn't keen on that at all. I mean, well, what was she thinking? Was she thinking she's Mary and would conceive via immaculate conception? She could have pulled out of the wedding any time, even on the day, but she went through with it. And her solution to not wanting to root her husband was to trick him into going near a cliff and push him over. She also made so many rookie mistakes in not really showing any normal emotions when Cody was first reported missing by a friend. In fact, it seems like she was the happiest she'd been for a while. Now, being able to find his body in such a remote place really made everyone suspicious at that time and investigators were able to then use the location to get the CCTV of her and Cody in the car of the night she went missing. So she's just, I don't know if she was just trying to give herself up to confess. I mean, these are like embedded confessions in things you say where you say certain things and basically you're just confessing to what you've done. So when you add up all these things, including the text messages, the fake Tony emails, the way she acted when Cody went missing, she would have been better to just shut the fuck up, not find the body, cry a bit, and you never know, she might have gotten away with it. Now don't get me wrong, I'm glad she will be doing time although maybe 30 years isn't long enough. Now, thinking how Cody was probably lured up to the cliff face, he was probably blindfolded, thinking he's finally going to get the surprise he told everyone about, and that was probably some sex, finally after more than a week after his wedding. Of course, he was doing the Christian thing of not having boom boom before his wedding, but then to get pushed over a fucking cliff? I mean, what the fuck? What would be going through your head at that moment? To fall 300 feet or about 100 metres, now that takes about four and a half seconds. And you hit the ground at about 100 miles an hour or 160 k's an hour. That's if you don't hit rocks and shit on the way down, which is bad enough. Now that's enough time to analyse what the fuck just happened. Of course, Jordan still maintains that it was an accident and that she was defending herself when Cody got mad. 
but there was no evidence that Cody ever got mad at anyone before. Jordan, as far as I'm concerned, willfully lured Cody up there on a promise of sex and pushed him to his death, thinking she'd just go on with her life as normal. I mean, what a cunt. Why didn't she just walk away from it all? Cody would have got over it eventually, for fuck's sake, and I feel so much for Cody's family and friends who've lost someone so special in their lives. And again, 30 years, that'll go by fast, and then she'll be out. So Island is another one of those episodes. So at the end of the show, as always, we do the business and to the Patreon shout-outs for this week. Boomfuckalunga to Pammy B and to Glenn Fukui. I hope that's how you pronounce your name, Glenn. Uh, also to Lisa and the Melbourne Marvels, which I found was a podcast with a few shows about Melbourne. So if you're interested in Melbourne, maybe check them out. Just Google Melbourne Marvels. And also we have Jay bumping up from $1 to $5. So, Jay, some stickers coming next month. Thank you all for so much for your support. Thanks so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference, as you know. True Crime Island is totally listener-supported. I keep it ad-free. As you know, I don't like them. Neither do you, I'm sure. Of course, if somebody's going to, like, Ford are going to sponsor me and give me a Mustang <laughs> I'll do something like that but at this point ad free if you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month you too can become a patreon go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and check out the levels and rewards I sent out all the remote reward emails for mugs with the tracking and sent out all the stickers last week so let me know if you don't get your reward now for mugs and t-shirts I will send the tracking details once I get it Now, I send the stickers via normal mail, so that doesn't have any tracking. I need to know if your mug or t-shirt isn't delivered within 60 days so I can sort it out with Threadless. Now, you can also do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels and fantastic tote bags. But the favourite of mine always always is the mug of rage. All available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, listeners, please don't order the black mugs. So, I do have keychains, lapel pins and stickers which you need to contact me directly for. This can be done by emailing me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. And that's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say boom fuckalunga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tune in, show them. Because there's a great world of podcasts, not just True Crime Island out there. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. Shout out again to Curtis in Melbourne. Boom, fuck a lunga, mate. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James. And I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck a